Hey there, and welcome to the Social at Cafe podcast. This is a lighthearted educational series fueled by coffee and conversation, where we answer the question, what is social work? So go brew your favorite drink, tell everyone you are doing some professional development and come join me, Dr. B, in the Social Work Cafe. Welcome back, everybody, to the Social Work Cafe and a special welcome back again to Jack McNamara. How are you doing, Jack? I'm good. Thanks, Bernie. Thanks for having me on here again. Well, it is my pleasure. I really enjoyed our episode that we did a couple of months ago where we unpacked our conference adventure in Prague. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, you've actually been to yet another event since then. You have been just jet setting across the globe already, wow. like two international trips in one year, all to do with your doctoral research and many works that you're doing. It's um, been quite a year for you, hasn't it? It has. And yeah, I touched down back in Australia a few weeks ago. So, and I'll share a bit more about this soon, but around the conference that I attended in Vancouver, which was the Healing Our Spirit Worldwide Conference, which was a First Nations conference based on healing. Beautiful, enriching experience. But how fortunate am I to be able to do two international trips in one year? Both incredibly amazing. So yeah, still yeah. still getting used to being back in Australia. Um, <laughs> say like your feet have touched down but where's the head at where's the spirit at I'm I'm sure it's still floating around in the sky somewhere I'm still thinking of maple leaves and syrup (laughs) oh my god Canadian maple syrup it is a wonder of the world I brought liters back with (laughs) (laughs) of course you did of course you did well so just to give people some context today I, and I did actually flag this in our bonus episode that we'd be having you back, Jack, to go into much greater detail about feminism in social work. And I'm hoping this will be a nice controversial topic for some people because whenever we, I, I do lectures on feminism, you know, in our curricula and, you know, it's always a sort of contrast. Oh, it's interesting to say contrasts. And I always, actually, when I start my lectures, before I even dig in or dive into the material, and the content, I usually get our students to really just stop and unpack their associations with the term feminism mm-hmm. because there are just so many stereotypes, misinformation, et cetera, et cetera. We'll, I'm sure we'll unpack some of that because your journey into feminism hasn't, a bit like mine, hasn't been a linear process. Yeah. Like we both came to feminism later in a way and you have just really gone into detail and have centred it within your PhD, which is what we're going to talk more about today around what you've discovered too about feminism's place in social work or lack of place, perhaps we'll, we'll see what unfolds. But so before we dive into that, let's go back a little bit more, even though you introduced yourself a little bit in the bonus episode, I think it'd be good to give people a little bit more detail about your social work practice background and, and how then you along the way, that background has informed your journey into becoming interested in feminism in social work? Yeah, great question. And I think we always need to start with positionality, um, Mm. where we come from, who we are. I'm a social worker. I was born and raised in Rockhampton, which is the Rumble country. And I'd like to take this opportunity to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging on the Rumble country. Born and raised here, so I'm very familiar with with Rocky, um, ventured out once to Perth and lived there for a little while. Absolutely loved it. 
found my partner there and brought him back here. And he loves, <laughs> it. <laughs> loves the humidity, not. <laughs> <laughs> so Rocky, for those who aren't too familiar with it, is it's about a seven hour drive north of Brisbane. It's based around agriculture and mining. Where it's, it's like the beef capital of Australia. That's contested burning. Oh. <laughs> there are some places in good old New South Wales. <laughs> that and I think Wagga might try and challenge you for yeah. that title. Yeah. <laughs> for a bit but we like to call ourselves the beef capital we have many statues of cows so surely we've earned it (laughs) (laughs) but you know good old rocky like most regional towns in australia has quite a few socioeconomic challenges and i'd have to say in terms of my identity that's definitely shaped part of who i am my social work degree I started when I was the tender age of 17. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, so I was. I For some people, they're in school at that yeah, age. Yeah, so you're I, quite young. I- just finished school and decided social work was for me. Like most people, it's kind of like it's a calling. <laughs> and yeah. Professions. Did I know what social work was? No. <laughs> it, was a, it was a rude awakening when I went to one of my first residential schools and they're going around asking everyone, why are you come? Why did you come into social work? And I want to help people. I said, I want to, no, wait for it. I want to earn money for helping people. <laughs> So that was, that's where this started, right? Oh, the idealism. (laughs) Oh, it was. And, you know, I really grew alongside my social work education because at times it was pretty turbulent. It took me six years to finish because I was a young person going through young person things. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But it was a really transformative journey for me. I think, and the older that I've gotten, the more that I value the wisdom that comes with lived experience and not to discount or credit the young people who come into the profession, but it certainly helped me, I think, to develop my practice framework and my identity to get some lived experience happening. So because I'm a bit of a sucker for punishment, I decided the year after I finished my bachelor degree, and I have to point out, I'm the first in my family to finish a degree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't on the trajectory when I finished school and I thought, I'm going to go to uni. I want to help people, you know, and I thought I'd do it. And I actually got through it. So I had a bit of momentum, you see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, I'll go back and do a master's. And I had some great lecturers and they're like, yeah, you would be great. We would really like you to come back. And so I did that. So I'm a sucker for punishment. So you went back straight away Very to do the master's? Within about oh. eight, nine months, I went back. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, definitely a sucker for punishment. Yes, Bernie. <laughs> that's what I recognized when I went back. I'm like, what have I got myself into? But, you know, during, during my master's, I was also working in the field. And I guess to start by explaining my practice experience, I want to talk about my practice framework, um, which is really reflective of my strong commitment to social justice. And did I understand that that's what the profession was about when I said I wanted to earn money for doing a good thing? <laughs> no, but probably that, not. that really scaffolded through my journey through the education. I have a significant interest in challenging the intersecting systems of oppression that disadvantage women and girls. And it's really safe to say I'm a staunch feminist. So when we started this by saying it could be a little bit controversial, we can't promise that bras won't be burned. (laughs) Um, My feminism is radical, critical and intersectional. So that's how I like Mm. to position myself. I'm also That's how you position yourself now, right? Was that what your framework was when you first emerged as a graduate and then went into masters? I think there was flavours of it, but it certainly wasn't what I'd say actuated. And when I say actuated, yeah. I mean 
actually incorporating feminist thinking into the doing of the profession. So, so and, was there probably theoretical yeah. or in your or yeah, in your mind, but were you That's doing right. it in practice? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as well as that, I think in terms of that intersectional lens, I'm really passionate about decolonizing practices. And I always actively engage in any opportunity for some action in that space. I've been regarded as an ally in my, my community by First Nations people. And uh, an example of that is the Vancouver Conference, yeah. uh, which I was invited by Annie Lynn Anderson, who is a Gungaloo woman and the CEO of the Healam Yumba Healing Agency, which is a First Nations yeah, healing agency. And she invited me to join and attend with the Healam Yumba contingent to head over to Vancouver with them uh, to experience the conference, which, as I said, was a deeply enriching cultural experience with activism at the forefront. So yeah. it really gave me a lot of the thought to bring back to our Australian context. But we're talking about my background. So in terms of my direct practice, so it's pretty varied. <laughs> and I was doing a master's during the time. So yeah. Application sometimes of myself into practice, as you can anyone on the in the study journey would know. Sometimes you give half bit of a half life <laughs> yes. in practice. But I've worked in government and non-government. So predominantly in youth mental health, but I've also worked in child protection and domestic violence. Mm-hmm. I've worked in generalised and, acu- uh, and com- uh, acute community settings um, and private practice as well. So quite varied. Wow, very, yeah, yeah I love mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And I think in that, if we go into a little bit around where feminism, I think, become more pronounced for me on my journey. Yeah. Um, I worked a lot with young women who had, so this was in the private practice in particular and in youth mental health. So I worked a lot with young women who had been diagnosed with borderline personality. Personal. I was going to say was, oh, or if they didn't have a diagnosis, it was they have the BPD traits. <laughs> that was always my favourite when I was a counsellor. Yeah, the traits. Oh, my yes. God. Anyway. And, and, you know, through that, I saw firsthand the stigma and the discrimination, and it was gendered that they had experienced as a result of the diagnosis. And I think at the time, I really found it difficult to reconcile with my social work values, the treatment standards that were set out for BPD, because essentially it was it was about pathologising and labelling yeah. what I perceived as trauma that was experienced as a result of a patriarchal society. Like that's... I have to say, I had a similar reckoning in my own practice. I wasn't as explicit with the feminism as you, but just, I got, I just remember when I was, particularly with women, it was only women. Oh no, sometimes a man would pop up, but just in particular, you know, like working alongside or trying to work alongside mental health practitioners who kept talking in derogatory terms about these clients who I was seeing as a counselor, calling them, you know, the personality, you know, borderline personality disorder and their problematic behaviours. And I'm like, or disordered. Yeah. And I'm like, are we going to talk about the fact that these are women who, like particularly most, well, all of them who I saw were survivors of childhood sexual assault, were currently escaping domestic violence. Like there was just no recognition of the social issues and the gendered patterns. And I, that was my blind spot, naming the gendered patterns too. But it took a while. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was kind of like at the time you're so immersed, and I I do look at I looked at this a lot in my masters around becoming institutionalized ourselves. Yeah, you know, and complicit that dominant oppressive discourses, well, ideologies of yeah. the organisations that we work for. 
And I think what I actually found was the most effective intervention was connection and validation of the Just listening. Empathy, I know. And, not pathologising. Totally yeah, agree with you. Yeah. And to be, and this is something that's a bit of a buzzword and I'm going to, I'm going to say it, it's been very much co-opted by the patriarchy, trauma-informed work. Tra- tra- yeah, yeah. Trauma-informed work. And I'm not talking about. Like the CBT form of it, but the no. actual non-pathologising Correct, lived experience approach. And I think that for me, it was all glossy and, you know, a lot of window dressing in terms of social policy, contemporary social policy around best practice and mental health service delivery. And really what actually worked was that validation and connection of the story of what predisposed some of the emotional challenges and experiences that a lot of these young girls and women had as a result of living in our patriarchal society. So that, for me, was certainly a space in which the flames of feminism were stoked. Um, it yeah. started there. There is, as you said, it's nonlinear. There's nonlinear because I went from there and I then worked in a domestic violence shelter. And wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. So that, as if it wasn't overt already in a BPD diagnosis, coming into DFV was extremely confronting. And I think... The feminist approach and the centrality of it and the, necess- the necessity of it was at the forefront for me then. It became really overt that I needed to be a feminist practitioner. And I couldn't, but where it started was, it's quite simple really. And you don't think about it until you think about it. And I just, I'd reflect on, I'm like, okay, I'm in this locked facility with women and children who are becoming essentially institutionalised being in there as well. Whilst um, yes. perpetrators of family violence could carry on with their everyday life. Yeah, often living in the family home too. Living in the family home, doing their own grocery shopping. Then being maintaining their family, norms. Maintaining all their norms without a caseworker having to facilitate it and fearful to go out in public. There was something very wrong with our norms, our legislation. that this Our entire approach to addressing like domestic and family violence oh it was it really got me questioning (laughs) and I started questioning myself I thought like is my practice actively challenging these structures or am I inadvertently enabling them by Mm. being locked up in the facility with them I know some I know the work needed to be done and I know they needed safety but where was the address of the cause of the problem where was the accountability for the uh, perpetrators Exactly. And I mean, now we see a lot of that language used, but we also see language that distance, distances perpetrators from accountability, yeah. like someone who chooses violence. Mm-hmm. And I do question that as well, you know. So I think that that's where for me, I started to really go, I need to consolidate this. <laughs> this, this kind of like some stuff around. I need to rectify in my yeah. mind here. Yeah. And practice. Yes. So they were practice experiences, but as you know, I'm currently an academic, um, a social work academic, and I've taught into a lot of different programs across Australia for the past seven, eight years now. So I, I currently position myself as an educator, a social work educator. I'm the field education coordinator at CQ University. I've been in that role for a couple of years now, but I've worked at CQU for a very long time. It's my career home. Um, Went through study there, worked there. Yeah, they can't get rid of me. (laughs) (laughs) I love 
field education. I love being at the nexus of practice and academia. Field ed is a really dynamic and really evolving space that presents our profession, I think, with a lot of opportunity to be creative, innovative and disruptive. I really want to point that out. Field ed, I've seen so much action in field ed that students go out, they raise the banner for social work, they walk the talk, they do it, and they're so brave. And I'm I'm honestly so honoured to, to work with them. It is such an incredible space to be in field ed. And a big shout out to my colleague, Dr Shirley Ledger, who she recently finished her PhD on the topic of field education pedagogy. And I just need to say that that's really provided me with so many insights into disruptive practice in field education. Yeah. and how to share that with students. So it's become a huge part of my teaching framework. So thank you, Shirley. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. No, she does amazing work. And I think that's a good point then to talk more about like social work being positioned or not as a feminist profession, because I mean, those students, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. We often get really passionate students who are just so keen to get out there and do amazing work. But at the same time, they need to be enabled by us as educators to stoke yeah. that passion and get, you know, stoke the fires of it. And it sounds like you've been trying to do that in your own work. So what have you discovered along the way as an educator, as well as a doctoral student about whether social work really is positioned or not as a feminist profession? Because just from my own background, I barely remember the word feminism coming up in my own study. Well, that's important to highlight, I think, because for a lot of, I think, social work programs across the country and definitely the ones I've taught into, social work features, um, feminist rather, it features, um, but it's definitely a bit peripheral. And I think that when we think about, when we think about feminist social work practice, mm. we have to think along the lines of where did we come from so so what what's our what's our historical context and unfortunately for social work in the Australian context it is a patriarchal inception we were born out of a response essentially to police the poor people and that's something that that's an uncomfortable yeah, kind just of reality, <laughs> isn't it? I think you need to unpack that a little bit more. Like this comes yeah. out of your lit review, doesn't it? In your yeah. PhD in particular. And look, I don't think it's too far from what students have been learning and teaching around social work as a modernist project. Mm-hmm. We speak to that quite well. I know in our programs, like that the, and problematizing the colonial thinking and the, mm-hmm. and the critiques of modernism. But actually you discovered what was missing often in the critiques is the patriarchal influence. Mm-hmm. So it's just so prevalent. Yeah. And I, maybe I should start with where I developed the idea for my PhD. And I think whilst I've talked about, I think we need to go right back to the start. So I think when we talk about feminist practice, I think we need to come back to the personal and the professional. And I think for me, feminism is actually inherently and first and foremost, deeply personal. And I, I, I think that it's hard to explain, but I think through personal experiences and growing up in some of the challenging environments that I have, only feminism, as much as I probably didn't register what it was, I think only feminism 
got me through that. I think it only, only feminism helped me through that. Um, That's intriguing. Yeah. 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 Even later in life, you know, some of the challenges as being a woman in the world, I think only feminism got me through that. And I found through the PhD focus groups that I did with mm. my participants that they felt that the personal and professional deeply intertwined when it comes to feminism and as well as culturally as well. So for cultural perspectives. So that's not too far from what we currently even teach, no. but we haven't made it overtly a feminist matter, no. have we? Yeah. No. Somewhere along the way, feminism, like, because when you unpack the entire, like what we teach, there's a lot of feminism present, but it's just not explicitly named or it's been sort of made. That's yeah. And, yeah. And- so my first memory of finding a way of feminist being and thinking that sort of mm. authentically resonated with my emerging practice framework. So it was during my social work undergraduate degree, mm. but it wasn't what was taught to me. Um, I was a present, one of my lecturers did share it with me, but they weren't teaching it in their in their um, units. So it was a presentation by Gail Dines. So for oh, those who haven't yeah. heard of Gail Dines, Gail is a sociologist and a feminist, an absolute queen. And in her presentation, she overviewed the intersection between patriarchy and neoliberalism. Now, at the time I was doing my degree, we all hated neoliberalism. So I was like, oh, I get that one. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. That's familiar. That's familiar. And I think with my critical social work lens on, which we can talk more about critical social work and my thoughts on that soon, but mm. that really struck a chord with me and it introduced me to the concept of intersectionality and specifically my interest then in the second wave of feminism with its more political and radical focus. So the women's liberation. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's just important yeah. we practice back yeah. to, because feminism, as we know, there's lots of ways waves of feminism there's lots of thinking around and it's a heterogeneous movement as well Yeah. yeah yeah and I think that it's it's just important to come back to where the PhD started to talk yeah. about, to get to talking about why it is we need to make sure we're incorporating feminist thinking and not just incorporating, but privileging, but I'll get there soon. Um, and practicing it. Cause it's, practice, always, it's yeah. not just about the theory. It's always been uh, a political movement. Yeah. So when I did the master's topic and you, this is how you and I met in yeah. the professional identity focus in it. And of course the findings indicated that social work knowledge wasn't valued in health and the passion for our profession is what sustains our identity. Woohoo! I, I wrote a master's thesis. <laughs> um, I felt great. But the elephant in the room was a gender focus. And it was interesting that I had missed this, you know, given my earlier encounters that I just spoke about yeah. you know, with them yeah. in my practice. It, th- this, so this, what I'm trying to get to is this kind of insidious <laughs> way in which feminism is silenced. And put to the side. Put it to the periphery. So, and it also had been absent in my practice as much as I may have, and I know we do supervision but we need to think about the knowledge systems that inform the way in which we carry out supervision social work supervision so I started thinking really critically about that and that's when I started the PhD and I remember sitting down with you and Karen and Wendy who are my supervisors um, talking about building on my master's research Mm. but you know I still at that point hadn't explicitly identified the gendered aspect of our profession and it wasn't until I think it was Wendy one of my supervisors said I really think in your literature review you should have a look at the sociology of professions and I remember thinking no (laughs) 
I don't want to. I've just done a mark. Yeah, that sounds like something Wendy would bring up. Sounds dry, Wendy. I don't want to do that. So, but you know what? I embarked on it anyway because she's she's got a lot of knowledge. You don't say no to Wendy when she brings up those sorts of things because she is, I know I've had those reactions in the past. And then when I do it, I'm like, yeah, right. She's right as usual. I know, I know. And that's where we get to with this. So I did. And and also as well as that, exploring the Australian context. So historical, contemporary context of social work. So that's what, you know, I got off on my literature review, got started. And I remember, I remember thinking at the time, I thought, oh, something's really missing here. Like, you know, just, and it, it was just so glaringly obvious. I'm like, well, we're a female majority. And all of this thinking that we use in our profession, it's all for men. <laughs> it's like, androcentric. Very androcentric. And I just thought, what is going on here? So it was really interesting to actually start quite broad like that and to identify And I think that, you know, feminism and critical thinking and social work are often synonymous you know. Um, well, feminism actually informed a lot of modern contemporary critical social work, but that seems to have been lost along the way, oh, like but those, acknowledging that. Those elements of that, of critical thinking, yeah. going out with the bathwater kind of thing. Yeah. But it, there was a huge gap that I found was in woman, woman-centric knowledges actually yeah. informing our, our knowledge systems for the profession. And then further, that we had a sexual division of labour. How did that not register for me? Mm. <laughs> you know, I, th- I was really grappling with myself at the time. Um, I remember all this supervision meetings around that because I also brought that because it was a it was a blind spot in my own PhD one of my examiners brought up you know like I'd done a study on professional identity with newly qualified social workers and they said what about gender and I was like oh god damn it I know and and you and and where we are this is my point is that we it's by design it's it's we're not meant to think about that we're not meant to question that and Andre Dworkin talks a lot about the repercussions of questioning that so because that's what dominant or systems of oppression do they normalize and have their dominant framework which means that they make like neoliberalism has written a lot about how it's just the norm we don't even we name it in social work but a lot of like journalists and that often don't name it because Mm -hmm. it's just the norm of economics and society that's right and when they dominate that way it ends up just silencing all these other frameworks and otherizing them and that's the so and that that's what i found when i was looking at the sociology of professions and at the start i wasn't very enthusiastic about it but now you're its biggest advocate i certainly am and i found that a lot of it was male knowledges that really pervaded professional projects and when i talk about professional projects we're talking about how a profession is constructed what constitutes a profession yeah exactly and how does a profession develop sovereignty and demarcate yeah. so all of those elements and it's very taxonomic and it's very derived hierarchical exactly and social work falls in line with as a patriarchal professional project and that is something that was really hard for me to grapple at the start and then when I was looking at our social work in Australia and in the Australian context it was really clear to me that our knowledge base was inherently androcentric because of all the historical social and political context and the patriarchal inception was actually a mutually going back to good old Gail Dines was mm. actually a mutually reinforcing oppressive ideology alongside neoliberalism and capitalism yeah. all of which 
to varying degrees primarily serve male interests. So this was my analysis and I'm mindful that others may have a different take on that, but that's my analysis of our history and our contemporary practice. Yeah. So that's Well again, it's not far away. Like like I said, we we've done a lot of work to critique the mm. modernist roots of social work. It's capitalist, it's it's Euro Western based roots and its problems, but off yeah. It's just what you're adding to that and making, well, not adding, but making visible is the androcentric roots yeah. that have just been flying under the radar in all of that critique. Well, here's a great example. So, you know, currently in our profession, the dominant discourses are around or centre on critical practice and perspectives, right? Mm. But I argue in my literature review that women and feminism are the blind spot in critical theory and our roots yeah. for critical theory are in postmodern philosophy, which we all love. We all love yeah. postmodernism, right? But postmodernism mm-hmm. is partly a product of the thinking from the social yeah. political left. Now, many of the women from the second wave feminist movement were intensely critical of the socialist political left in arguing that their postmodern ideological position that focuses on that more traditional class analysis, which is still used a lot in social work today it really ignored the plight of women it did didn't it subjugated them and one of the examples it was a big reason why the women's liberation movement was spawned because like you had women they were part of those movements like those social movements of the 60s and 70s like your civil rights movements even and trade union movements you know those class struggles but through all of those so-called progressive social movements women's experiences were being utterly ignored or suppressed because the male leaders of those yeah. of many of those movements they were beating their wives and well, committing domestic well, violence the and- example that i'll use is one that andrea dworkin talks about in her book right-wing women i think yes it's an yeah, yeah. excellent read i love woman hating by andrea dworkin but yeah i loved this book more i it the political context that it, it overviewed was just so spot, spot on. on it was brilliant chef's kiss <laughs> I'm so good. woman chef kiss um it was so so good and so what she spoke about um, was the sec that's the sexual liberation in the 1960s well oh, the so-called an sexual liberation Hugh an, Hefner yeah, yeah 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 which is an extension of the socialist political left at the time and she quotes that it is a form of patriarchal exploitation that sexual liberation was practiced by women on a wide scale in the 60s and it did not work that is it did it not free women its purpose it turned out was to free men to use women without the bourgeois constraints and in that it was mm. successful so what did we see men got quite liberated during that time but women that. very much not so yeah 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 and then before this time we had the likes of Simone de Beauvoir yeah. who was a French feminist philosopher and she had warned that whilst so this is from the same school of thinking right that whilst issues when interpreting issues of class socialist and communist ideology actually lacks focus on sex-based struggle for women yeah. as women are view outside of class structures due to the male perceived position of women as other and this is also a lot of thinking that's in feminist eco-feminism as well mm. so women are, are seen as other in a male-dominated society and there is one exception i've got to call out to my homeboy frederick angles frederick angles i was just <laughs> going to bring him up because he had a lot of influence on yeah, that the yeah. women's liberation and he was going to Karl Marx dude focus on women he's like regarding so regarding women as a class that's how he saw women as a class group and he advocated 
hard for their freedom from a patriarchal yeah. society. And this is in his work alongside Marx because he recognised it was missing in Marx's yeah. analysis. But that didn't take foot, of course, yeah. because it doesn't serve our interests. So I think in adopting, so coming all the way back to our critical focus, so I've just yeah. I've like my analysis for where our critical focus comes from and critical class theory from a yeah. postmodern school of thought, social work to me appears to have avoided so much that feminism could have offered the profession. And I think that we had a really crucial point where postmodernism was the it thing when it sort of its inception period. And I think that. Yeah, it it had some really good. Feminism. And I think there was so much that could have happened. And it was going to be used to really hold those systems to account but (laughs) yeah and I think that for us as a profession we just continued on that path of struggling with that dichotomy of the individual and structural dilemma you know and I think that this comes from you know the age-old rhetoric of us with our social justice values versus you know the neoconservative ideals that were emerging at the time Mm -hmm. and I think that just took precedent you know and I think that this world plus there was massive backlash against feminism like later on particularly from the late 80s and early 90s like when I was coming of age it became a dirty word you Mm. know and so and that was all by design and that happens with any social movement too you know when a social movement makes progress there's often a massive backlash against it because those systems of power are like oh no we're not ready to give it up no and that's that's where I want to come to with how social work is it positioned as a feminist professional or not that's not an easy answer (laughs) because Mm. I think that um, look I can and I will look I will share my thoughts on that but I think to be more aligned with my position and you'll know from reading a lot of what I've written in the past around shared knowledges is to invite yours. And I know you said today you didn't really want to talk, but I, if you've got a little bit, you could share. Oh, I can't help myself. Though. I know. Is I really want to invite yours and the listeners who are listening to us, their reflection and yours on how you currently incorporate or privilege feminism in your social work practice. And as you know about me, Bernie, I'm very action-oriented, I'm activist-focused, I'm disruptive, transformative, all those things. So whilst I could tell you, and I will, I'll get to it, my thoughts and what I think about it, but I really wanted to unpack that first with you. And Mm. if that's okay, I know this Mm. is actually about me and my ideas and my research but to prompt your thinking and whoever's listening about your ideas of feminist social work practice I'm going to share a I don't you love how in Australia we say we're gonna Gonna. I didn't realize it until I was in Vancouver and everyone said I'm going to I'm like (laughs) what what (laughs) anyway sorry slight (laughs) but I'm going to share a quote from Lena Dominelli Dominelli who is a legend identifies feminist social worker and her ideas on if social work embraced feminism what it would look like and she says that feminist social work practice would start from an analysis of women's experience of the world and focuses on the links between women's position in society and their individual predicaments to create egalitarian client worker relationships and address structural inequalities damn that is summarized nicely my drop lena like that's that for me and i'll talk more about my thoughts soon but that for me really encompasses what i think it would be nice for for social work yeah inherent social work like you know yeah like where it's centered it's yeah yeah privileged 
So I guess I'd ask you, mm. <laughs> how do you feel you position feminist practice in your social work? I, mean, I know you work predominantly in academia, but. Well, for me, it's because, um, yeah, I came to it later, like I said, with my sort of feminist awakening, even though it was always, it was sort of tacitly there, you know, when we talk about tacit mm. knowledge, for example, like I was always railing against throughout my whole life, you know, injustices and, but I very much grew up in a context where feminazi was like the worst thing you could be called and not understanding what that is. And I think that really informs then where I've become around to first and foremost, like I've been doing a lot of soul searching and learning and reading, you know, like you said, Andrea Dawkins, and I'm going to be putting links to everything. Like you can actually download for free the complete works of Andrea Dawkins work. Cause when she died, she put it into her will. She did not want people (laughs) paying for her work. So there is a link and I've loved coming across Gail Dines. Pavla Miller is another one. I've enjoyed reading her work, just how she succinctly brings receipts around patriarchy as a system and how it flourished. So for me, it's then been about first and foremost, working on myself and unpicking a lot of my own background, my own journey and looking at feminism and pairing that then now more so with trauma-informed practice. I was really like, when that started to emerge as a model, I found myself bristling against it because I felt like it had become a fad. But now that I've been able to align it with a feminist worldview, I'm like, oh, boom, I'm off and running. So for my, for me, it's been about how do I bring this as an educator into our teaching. And I've been very explicit about making changes to subjects or materials where I can. But then also it's about your ongoing conversations with students and with colleagues and anyone where you see an opportunity to raise questions or call out, well, bullshit as well. But I think that's why going back to the very beginning of this conversation, why before I even go into feminism in social work, I ask our students to stop and unpack their relationship with that term, the images they have. And that's very much informed by my personal upbringing, you know, and how that term was always presented in the mainstream to me. And so I've had to work through basically what I, my conclusion to that to students is do your fact checking. Actually go in and get, like most of the people I hear who have ever bullshitted about feminism, they've never even picked up a feminist book. That's right. They've never even read anything. Like there's a lot of really right-wing commentators, you know, in the US in particular, and I'm not going to name them and give them a platform here, but, you know, they go on about how feminism is the scourge of communities and society. I guarantee you they've never even read a feminist book. They never actually give names or receipts. They just give generalizations. So for me, it's that's, that, that's an academic pursuit to call out that kind of stuff as well. But that's sort of where I'm at in mind. And for me, it's also like when I did phenomenology in my PhD, which you've done as well or incorporated, it was a blind spot. And now I'm finally getting into the feminist phenomenology as well, which means revisiting de Beauvoir as well as other amazing feminist phenomenologists and thinkers in general that contribute. So it's just, it's a journey, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. It's a journey. I love it. We're doing social work response. It's a journey. But it, it really, really is. And I think that when you talk about education and awareness, that they seem to be your primary strategies for developing not only your yeah. feminist, flying the but flag. stoking that fire and yeah. passion in students to actually engage yeah. with this in a critical way. I'm not here claiming feminism is perfect. 
no social <laughs> movement and theory and practice is perfect, but it needs engagement and critical examination and it needs us all contributing to make it better. But again, as you said, it's been a very deliberate move by certain voices to silence this voice and to silence this dialogue. And Systems of power don't want to give up their power. That's right. And that, that brings me to my thoughts. <laughs> And I'm wondering uh, before I, I'm, I'm big here, I wish we could have had like an interactive session with an audience. I would have loved to have to yeah. have what the listeners were thinking. And we might talk a little bit about strategies for incorporating feminism soon as well, which I don't know, maybe the listeners. Well, maybe. I want to ask you later about advice that you would give to listeners about centering feminism. And I, but I have a feeling you're going to touch on that as you speak, you maybe. know, to your answer as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think so for me, and I can only speak for the work that I've done and the research that I've done doing that typical disclaimer <laughs> yeah <laughs> contextualizing yeah just contextualizing um so it's uh, my research has led me to the conclusion that feminism is on the periphery of social work and yeah. I'm, I don't want to discount all the incredible work that is done by feminist practitioners who I know of and a lot that I don't know of and I take my hat off to you but as most of them that I have spoken to I want to acknowledge that they're tired because they are constantly going against the grain and that is something and that's that, within social work you mean like they feel is, like there's this the resistance in end of it in our yeah. profession so and I think you touched on this before around the silencing of certain discourses and this comes down to that concept of epistemic injustice and the long history of women's knowledges not just within I mean we're survivors ladies 7,000 years of patriarchy we've survived it but we have some battle scars and for that 7,000 years our knowledges have been disregarded devalued and particularly in relation to professional projects so I'm talking about my research around social work and those who haven't encountered the concept before is it okay for me to give a real brief about epistemic yeah Yeah. so it's a term that's coined by Miranda Miranda Fricker and it's to frame the relationships between power knowledge and oppression just more broadly so I use it in my research to highlight women's absence in knowledge development and this is the crust of the issue with social work contemporary and historic historical and contemporary social work is the absence of woman-centric discourse and knowledge is being incorporated and that's what is epic just for the audience epistemology is about sources of knowledge and we're speaking specifically here to women's embodied knowledge experiential knowledge and yeah is the domain in which we develop our understanding of reality yeah you know so and the focus group that I engaged with for the PhD big shout out to them if I haven't already if you're listening I'll probably share it with them so big I hope you will (laughs) hello Um, you guys nailed it when you explained this really well in I think it was a later meeting and I'll get on to the fact that it was a bit later how grand theories in social work that we draw on still in contemporary practice yeah. are all male derived. And the group talked about the example of attachment theory and yes. conceived of through a male worldview. Um, and I'm sure good old John spoke to a couple of women and fame. <laughs> like Mary Ainsworth. Inherently it is derived from a male worldview. And it's been propel- propelled by a male worldview. Yeah, 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 it has absolutely. And that's that reinforcement of those mutually oppressive systems of oppression for a certain purpose. CBT, like, and so many, um, or the medical model just broadly has, yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's, that is the the boys club. So it's not only is it not woman centric, but it also doesn't even have cultural 
consideration yeah. as well. So there were gaps with our intersectional lens as a group that we are yeah. they were like, wow, fascinating. And this is how we contributing to that epistemic injustice ourselves and inadvertently oppressing ourselves as well as the women and girls that we work with. So, mm. you know, it's really interesting how we can also be agents of that too. Yeah. Totally. And we tried not to be hard on ourselves. <laughs> we were like, it's okay, here, here, you know, we, we may have we may have done that, but we're going to change this. You know, we're, we're, as a group, we're going to change this. And that's where you spoke before about awareness and raising people's awareness. And we talked a lot about consciousness raising. And in that consciousness raising, we spoke a lot about how it took a little while for us to recognize some of these things. And we put it down to that internalized bias, and it's androcentric bias, but an internalized, an internalized- misogyny misogyny that you 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 don't call out and name it for what it is unless you get to be a collective so yeah this is this is something and it it is synonymous isn't it with the neoliberal you know way of life we're all individuals and an individual and just be self-reliant on yourself yeah yeah as opposed to a collective we may not have i mean i'm sure we would have maybe developed those insights at some point or have even thought of them before but time and place is important and as women as a group where it was kind of sanitized from patriarchal discourse but it took a while to shed the all that bias and the layers of patriarchy which is what we have both described today when talking about our own journey into feminism it didn't happen overnight yeah (laughs) yeah. so i didn't give a clear answer (laughs) i mean i my answer is that i think it's on the periphery and i think we need to agree with you there i can see it a lot more consciousness raising i think we need to be thinking more disruptively and incorporating disruptive practice into embedding feminist thinking embedding an example of disruptive practice like to me when I was thinking that just now, I thought like a trauma-informed practice that is based on lived experience and is overtly feminist would could be could offer that. Like in if you if I was back working as a counselor, I'd like to think my practice would be more overt and calling out the BPD bullshit and saying wow. to you know mental health practitioners the very idea that a personality can be disordered is inherently flawed. Personality is so changeable That's right. and it changes throughout the day. Like this idea it can be disordered is just simply wrong when i talk with students about diagnostic criteria and and when we go when we when we go into that really clinical side of mental health i'll often challenge them by saying so who made the dsm Mm. and i think that this is a start is about examining the knowledge systems and really questioning where am i getting this knowledge from and what so critical being critical Uh, but a really great example of some disruptive practice and it's something that i can speak to because i do it a lot now in field education and my students (laughs) they know Know the flavor of our sessions is always me like what change are you going to make what are you going to go through <laughs> it is is through um it's through the work that we do and it it, it doesn't need to be this big monumental <laughs> active whatever in your face kind of protesting no, no it doesn't need to, you don't need to i mean you do please do hit the pavement protest but that does matter it's it but matters. it's one strategy it's one it's strategy and, apart and one of the strategies that we do incorporate is through the student learning experience so with my students on placement i always talk about what little thing can you do to resist what what can you do in your learning agreement so that's my way i like of, that 
Yeah, yeah, we do it and we workshop it and we workshop a learning goal that is focused on activism, resistance, disruption and transformation. And And sometimes it's about planting seeds. Like I think we have to remind our students and practitioners when we do activism, we don't necessarily get that immediate payoff that we do in, say, clinical work when a client can say, oh, my God, you truly listened to me and it has that immediate impact. We are talking about longer term work here that takes um, time to flourish and pay off and it's and it's the little things and coming back to when we were talking before what strategies can we use to incorporate a feminist focus in our practice for example sometimes students will do that so you know when working alongside women you know how many times in an interviewing and assessing sort of context do we go oh do you have a husband do you have children like centering your questioning around a woman's relationship to um materialist relationship to other instead of centering it on herself you know and and these are small this I know this doesn't sound huge but they make they do it can make a big difference it can articulating partnership when working alongside a woman asking her how she would like to articulate that how she'd like the exchange to go fostering self-determination autonomy these speak to our beautiful values that we have we just need to harness them with a woman's standpoint and I think that that's something that you can do these are small acts of resistance and I found in the focus groups that I did some of them were around changing the language that we use for example so when we I had someone in the focus group and she worked in a health setting she saw some language to describe a woman's experience of mental ill mental distress and she started going through and changing how those case notes were written up so they were more strengths oriented and, and trauma informed perhaps trauma informed mm. um, and I mean these are all things that we can do that don't involve us hitting the pavement with a placard and but then again I would definitely encourage that it's about both and end not either or either or and whatever your flavor is some people don't like to to expose themselves in that way and that's why mm. there are so many strategies that we can draw on to be able to do that. Also in supervision, if you're currently supervising a student, you know, set aside a time in that supervision for activism. What are we both doing? And it can be like a great partner in crime thing. What are we both doing at the moment in the agency to stir things up? Like how are we rocking the boat? How are we agitating? How are we challenging and changing that status quo bit by bit? And it needs to, because, you know, we have the, the age-old supervision framework of the educated, the administrative, the man, all the, those. Support. support. But where's the activism? Where's the activism? And it's like there almost needs to be a redesign or, and I always. I just don't even like the word supervision. I've been saying that for many years because it has that hierarchical also monitoring, but I still am yet. And if someone comes up with a better term for supervision, let me know. Because it's just, I feel like it's just a term we need to change. You nailed it when you said start with the self and engage in critical reflection. You know, what is feminism for you? Have you used it in your practice or do you plan to? What feminist literature have I read? Do I understand the varying worldviews in feminism and where do I sit with that? Yeah, yeah. Is my work feminist informed? Really unpack it. Find a supervisor who, if you are really interested in developing your feminist framework, find a supervisor who is going to foster that. You know, no point wasting time in a in a (laughs) I know we don't like that word, but in a supervision setting that isn't meeting your needs. So definitely consult the literature. Anything by Lena Dominelli on feminism is fantastic and for our professional focus. And she also positions it well with like 
all along, and we haven't mentioned it, so I want to give a shout, is to anti-oppressive practice. Like, cause she writes so beautifully to how we as professionals, it's, we can be oppressive. And so I'm picking that relationship and the power that is within, you know, the professional client or whichever word you prefer relationship and bringing in actively a feminist, not just lens, but practice to reconceptualize that relationship. So it's proactive participation, you know, making sure that those power dynamics are examined and mitigated. Like it's something it's taken for granted and that, that goes for any any person that we're working with, not just women, really. And I think for any male social workers out there who are listening, I would really recommend checking out work by Bob Pease. He's a fantastic ally. Mm. I love his work. And I think that a lot can be gained from developing your allyship because men have a lot that they can and need to do. They really- and there's a lot of tools in feminism that are useful for yep. men. Yep. You know, there are. Bell Hooks wrote to that. Oh, beautifully. Thanks for bringing up Bell Hooks. Like, <laughs> She, if there was a text that I would recommend reading from today, it would have to be Bell Hooks's Feminism is for Everybody. You, you need to acquaint yourself with that. It's a wonderful text. The other one would be Woman Hating by Andrea Dworkin. Also right-wing women to understand that political context is really helpful. As I said, anything by Lena Dominelli. But I think the other thing that I really want to just quickly point out is if you're currently sort of grappling and you are finding it difficult to incorporate feminism, you're feeling tired, you're feeling drained. I really want to take this opportunity to invite those people to reach out to me because I don't think that there is enough collectivity. Mm. We're all off in our own little separate worlds doing our own little separate individual things. and Which I think, I think is what would make us even feel more drained because we feel isolated. Really hard. And I, I won't lie, I've, I've definitely had moments where I feel really exhausted um, from trying to uphold feminist values and it, it shouldn't be like that. And I think we need each other. So I just want to take that yeah. opportunity that if you're interested in getting in touch and you know, there's been talk with myself and some others about forming kind of interest group or a practice group or something. And we, I think we need to collectivize. Um, that would be my other last piece of advice is to yeah. find your tribe. My research has found, as I said, that it can be really draining to take it all on by yourself and not to share the trials and tribulations of being a feminist social worker with someone like-minded. So find your tribe, find your people. Or create the tribe. <laughs> Go and start. Yes, with your, I would uh, right now. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would be, it would be wise. (laughs) Thanks so much for that, Jack. I think that's really wonderful advice, but also I think you've given the listeners just so much to think about, walk away from it's the kind of episode we need to unpack multiple times too, because we've covered a lot of terrain in terms of feminism that no, (laughs) just as our journeys are not long, um, non-linear. So is this conversation, which I absolutely love. And I think once you also have finished your doctoral research and really start publishing more of it, we'll have to cut you back to speak more to your focus group, all of the amazing and wonderful data. Well, hey, you know what I mean? Experiential knowledge that came out of that. Going to then the last question. A hard one. <laughs> the hardest one of all, perhaps. Give us your one sentence, you know, no, try not to give us the jargon, just keep it nice and simple. I will. I'll do my best. <laughs> what is social work, Jack? This changes for me all the time. And as a social work identity researcher, I feel quite, I'm really aware that there's not a one frame or one definition yeah. for us, but at the minute. <laughs> for um, now. 
For now, I like to position social work at all practice levels as a collective political and social justice response to oppressive structures. So in that... Yes, mic drop. So I I liked it too. I was actually thinking about this on my morning walk yesterday and I was like, she's going to ask me that. (laughs) So in that, we are a profession that must remain congruent of our role in either perpetuating or enabling these structures versus disrupting and transforming those. So I hope after this podcast today that critical feminism landed for some of the listeners and that they work and strive now to privilege that in our thinking to uphold our social justice commitment that we we must have we need to have that it's essential in a reimagined social work so that i've said this at the conference that i recently went to my presentation where women of the profession can center and privilege their discourses and knowledge systems and draw on these to inform their identity practice and service delivery and this will transform the outcomes of the people that we work with so that's my what is social work it had to have a feminist flavor in there so. i did <laughs> well, i mean that first part to this whole sentence too but i don't think any of our other guests so far this year you know put in the word political in particular so you've given me a lot to think about there and i can't i I mean i can't wait to collate all of these definitions actually and kind of compare and contrast them all the social work identity research for me just had i know right (laughs) that's so exciting (laughs) there's so much to unpack but it's i love i just love everything that you've said there and how you've turned the lens back onto social work and back onto us which is really in keeping with that reflexivity throughout that theme throughout that conversation today so jack it is reflexive isn't it i didn't think of that (laughs) has to be well that's that's the jan fook in me coming out i think she deserves a bit of a shout out even though she hasn't been as explicitly feminist in recent years a lot of her work is informed by feminists. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The notes section is going to be full of great resources and links for people to follow up. But Jack, thank you for coming back into the cafe for a second time. And you didn't slow down for one second in bringing your passion and enthusiasm for this topic and I it's exactly what I was hoping for (laughs) thanks so much for having me I got to avoid marking and I got to talk to one of my favorite people in the world so (laughs) (laughs) well not necessarily avoid but at least suspend it for for it'll it'll happen it's always there and we'll put your email in the notes Jack you know to honor your invitation with our listeners for anyone who wants to reach out I have a sneaking suspicion you'll get a few yeah yeah we need to think yeah totally totally thanks so much jack we'll leave things there thank you thank you for joining me today and i hope you enjoyed the episode you are most welcome to get in touch and tell me what you gained from the show you'll find my website details and email in the episode notes be sure to check out the notes for other links that you can follow up for further learning and development While you were there, tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the next episode. And feel free to rate and review the podcast so we can reach a wider audience. See you next time in the Social Work Cafe.